Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. And just make some space because otherwise I think there's so many things that are more than happy to take our time and our attention. That skill or that way of being got me this far, but gosh, now the world's like this and now I'm like this. What might I need to let go of? Complex problem solving, critical thinking and creative thinking are things that are needed for the future of work. And those are the muscles that are sort of built up when you do philosophy. And actually when it comes to careers, I don't think there is sort of one philosophy or one approach that just fits everything. Welcome to episode 69 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the listeners of the podcast for their continuing support. I hope you've had a chance to check out my new website, harshaborolesa.com. Please note that in this episode, we may touch on mental health and wellness topics purely in general terms. If you have specific issues or concerns, please do contact a suitable professional. Now back to the show. Brennan is a philosopher and the founder of Philosophy at Work, a collective of philosophers that teach the thinking skills professionals need to think their best. He holds a BA, MA and PhD in philosophy, and his doctoral work analyzes trust in the context of interpersonal relationships and corporate character. Recent projects include helping Deloitte UK cultivate a growth mindset, supporting the Wellcome Trust to explore trust in healthcare, and enhancing curiosity across Sony Music's global community. In addition to his role with Philosophy at Work, Brennan is a fellow at the Royal Society of the Arts. Originally from Detroit, Michigan, he studied in Sydney, Australia, and is now based in the UK. Welcome, Brennan. Thank you so much, Hasha. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Just before we, we were talking about the whole idea of serendipity and these small steps that seemingly can link together. Now, we initially met through the School of Life, where I attended one of your talks in 2017. But actually going back before that, I was actually at school with Alain de Botton, the founder of School of Life. Yeah. And you know, I, I didn't know him very well, but it was through um, seeing Alain's work and I, I liked his novels that I came across the School of Life. And now, you know, almost like you know, many years later, yes. we're sitting here recording a podcast. So I think it's really interesting, this whole idea of serendipity. But I think in life, sometimes waiting for those like big aha moments, mm-hmm. you, know, you can be waiting forever. But actually, it does show that if you take these small steps and small connections, they can actually build up to quite powerful things. I mean, wh- what do you think, Brennan? Do you know what? I completely agree. Um, There's so much, whether you want to call it serendipity or chance or luck that goes on. I'm a firm believer that life is not a closed system. I was really struck by this when I was reading a book by Annie Duke, uh, the professional poker player. Um, The book is called Thinking in Bets. And she says that, you know, life is more like poker than it is like chess. Now, I'm not a big sort of chess or poker player either way. But the idea is that in chess, it's a closed system. So if I move this piece here, there's a lot of moves you can make, but there's a set number of moves. And, and, you know, the way to get good, I'm told, at chess is by working out, um, you know, if someone does that, then you've got these options, right? But poker isn't like that. If I play this card or this hand, you could be bluffing. There's chance, there's uncertainty, there's all the pressure that comes with maybe the money that's at stake or something like that. And I think life is more like that. And so it can't just sort of be, well, I studied this degree and I got this mark, therefore I will be successful. It's not a closed system. It's much more, well, uh, I mean, actually, you know, when I um, when I met you at the School of Life, I was on the faculty there, right? And, I, and that was a, a role that I attained Um, by having lots of cups of coffee with various people. And actually the first time I went along to the School of Life to have coffee, I made a mistake. I I was supposed to meet with one person um, and there was another person who was at the School of Life who I'd also emailed, just sort of trying to see if I could get get a, a foot in. And when I arrived, I think I was just so nervous. I said the wrong person's name. And 
because of my mistake, both people then were brought from the back offices um, and they sort of, we all sort of laughed about it and they were like, oh no, you're, you're supposed to be seeing me, not this other person. Um, but we ended up having coffee with all, all three of us and that led to more opportunities. So it's not a closed system. There's mistakes, there's luck. Yes, we work hard. Yes, the degrees matter. But uh, yeah, I think serendipity is is quite something. I love that. Um, so, Brent, I, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share with our audience? Yes. One that, that does come to mind is uh, a book that I think it came out last year. It's by Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. Um, so, you know, Nick Cave, singer, songwriter of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Yeah. Sean O'Hagan is a, is a, a music a critic. They got together during uh, lockdown 2020 and had, a, a, well, didn't get together quite importantly, but um, had phone calls um, over that period talking about life and everything. And the book is called Faith, Hope and Carnage. And I loved it because it's very transparent. It's very authentic. They're being honest about things that really matter. So they're trying to grapple with the meaning of life and, and pain, grief and hope, all the things that are suggested in the title. Um, you know, So I listened to it on my headphones rather than reading it. I, I usually just read books, but I listen to this one. And it was quite good because it's a conversation between the two of them. And it's one where when you're listening, it, it sort of, provided a great backdrop for me to do my own wrestling, I think, with some of those concepts. So um, so that was a great one because, yes, it was about culture and I learned a thing or two about the bad seeds. But I think it's also really great in terms of philosophy and food for thought. No, I'm a big music fan and I love um, reading you know, biographies about musicians mm -hmm. and their creative process and how things evolve. Um, as much as I'd love to talk about music, I think our audience are more interested in careers. <laughs> Right. But, but actually sort of moving on to philosophy, um, I love the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch, um, mm -hmm. especially her book, The Black Prince. And I believe there's a quote by her, to do philosophy is to explore one's own temperament, and yet at the same time to discover the truth. I actually got that from one of your conversations with Aoife O'Brien, who's mm -hmm. a good friend of ours and a good friend of the show. Yeah. And, I, and I found the whole idea of self-discovery so uh, powerful, and the idea if you can really understand yourself and try to gain a mastery of yourself. And I, I don't think you can completely do that, but it does give you so many insights into yourself. So I was just wondering, what, what is it that led you to your interest in philosophy? Yeah, thank you very much. And really, it was a journey of career hopping all around. And, and actually, I think it maps onto that quote from Iris Murdoch too. I love that quote. And it's one because uh, the reason I love it is because it, it gets to the heart of how when we are doing philosophy, which I think is right. So, you know, at the start of that quote, Murdoch says, to do philosophy. I think too often we think of philosophy as something that is just writing or just ideas in an abstract, kind of removed from action kind of way, sort of just in the ivory towers. But actually, philo means love in ancient Greek. Yeah. Sophia is wisdom. So when we're doing philosophy, we should be pursuing, we should be loving wisdom. That is something that, that we do, right? It's not just sort of um, some kind of dusty, dusty study. And when we do philosophy, we're trying, we, we're trying to pursue the truth, trying to love wisdom, but at the same time, we have to do it through our own lenses. So when Murdoch says that, that quote, that to do philosophy is to explore one's own temperament, and yet same time to discover the truth, I would almost say, we're trying to pursue the truth, but we have to get through our own temperament because, you know, I've only got the experience that yeah. I have really. And I've only got the, the lenses and framings through which I see everything. Um, it's like we're wearing glasses all the time um, that, that filter everything. And so my the way that I understand life and truth and work and purpose and meaning um, and what I want to be doing is through that. So yes, we, we have to, philosophy is two, these two things married up. And I was originally studying uh, communications and I was working in radio broadcasting, but I was studying at a liberal arts university. And so as you do, had to do a bit of everything. I took intro to philosophy and I still remember the first day of class, uh, the professor who is this not particularly charismatic person, but somehow just gripped you and told great stories, you know? And I remember them telling the story of Plato's cave. That's all about freedom. I mean, well, it feels like it's about freedom. Really, Plato's trying to say something about what's really real in life. But in it, there's this image of people being chained up, sort of looking at a cave wall, 
and just observing shadows of what's actually real. And, and then it is the role of sort of in Plato's allegory, it's the role of philosophy that comes in and unchains the people and leads them out into the daylight. And that's where it feels like it's about freedom. And this really gripped me. And I thought maybe if I switch my major from radio to philosophy and I learn how to think, then maybe I can go back to radio and have more to say. Uh, because I always enjoyed the sort of not just the nuts and bolts technical sides of philosophy of, of radio, excuse me, but rather um, the connecting with people over the airwaves. Uh, and I thought maybe if I, I I need to have something to say, so if I learn how to think, I'll have more to say. So it was a it was a pivot of that sort. I initially moved to just philosophy and religion instead of just pure philosophy, and so I was studying ancient Greek and theology alongside philosophy. And I found that the theology uh, courses felt like they were all about answers. And I was really drawn to the questions in philosophy. And so it was this sort of journey that felt like it was without, without intention. I mean, well, I had intention, but it was not designed by me, by me for, for sure. Again, there was, there was chance and things, and I had lots of really kind professors. It was along those moves that I realized, actually, okay, I, I thought I loved ideas. Actually, I love questions. Um, I thought it was about communicating. Really, it's about exploring, exploring questions. And so... I never actually made it back to radio. No, but I, but I love that, you know, the whole idea of questioning our reality and actually what do we need to do? Because, you know, say, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people started questioning, you know, why am I doing this job? Uh, you know, the world could literally come to an end in a week's time or, you know, people are, are dying. And I do think with sort of philosophy, it, it helps to reframe things, reframe the way you look at the world. Um, and yeah, one th simple thing is that, I mean, if you think about the universe, how long it's been going on for, and we're just like a tiny dot in that. So really what we're doing now really doesn't make yeah, in the grand scheme of things doesn't make a, a, a huge difference i mean clearly on the micro level i'm not saying that one should you know, be apathetic and just sit at home and wait for things to happen but i do think it helps to just put things into perspective so say if you go for a job interview and you get rejected or something doesn't go well at work it's it's about perspective and i think if you can change your perspective that really helps to try and change your path and your reality i mean what what do you think brad yeah hugely i mean a perspective is a way of taking something right a way of making sense of something subjectivity self-awareness biases these things are notoriously difficult to really leave behind or really change right and yet it's possible to and there's so many biases that uh we're reminded all the time of these days that that need to change we need to leave behind but it's hard to do that and i think the same goes for perspective it's gaining perspective is hugely important but it's not it's not easy because of what we we're mentioning before about the iris murdoch quote it's everything we we understand is filtered by our own experience and so how do you step outside of that it's through empathy and connection with others right so i try to really pay attention when i'm talking and, and listening to people listening with people that, that have different views of mine and try to cultivate spaces where others um, might have very different views to myself um but then also try to build in habits to help shift some of that perspective right so i i know it's very easy for me to sort of get up I have my routines that I like, you know, I wake up early, I go for a run, I make some coffee, I do these sorts of things. And I enjoy that routine. Um, at the same time, I don't love too much routine. So I, I know that I could just get stuck in that perspective. But if I create a habit, so like, you know, once a quarter, I'll try to take an away day for one and get up early, drive out to, you know, Wales or the Peak District or something and spend the day hiking and asking myself, like throwing questions at myself to go like, why is what you're doing matter? What, you know, what's this about now? And just make some space because otherwise I think there's so many things that are more than happy to take our time and our attention. So it is cultivating a practice, having a habit of finding what works for us. I know I've realized over the years that I just come alive outside. That works for me. You know, for other people, maybe it's, it's not doing anything early. It's doing it late and it's, it's sitting by the fire or I don't know, something else. But, but yeah, cultivating those habits makes space for us, even within our subjectivity, even within our, with our lenses on, which we can't really take off, it makes space for us to reflect and, and hopefully break through some of those, those, those filters. I mean, no, I, I just love that, Brennan. And I think the one point that struck me was that it's really trying to understand yourself, because I think when people are trying to 
give general advice about or uh, strategies, it's very difficult because we, we're all on a spectrum. I mean, it could be some people are more introvert or extrovert. Some people are more interested in doing deep work or um, engaging with people. So I think it's very much, you know, when, when you're looking for answers, you need to think about what it is that, um, you know, how it applies to you. So it's very difficult to say, look, that one piece of adv- advice or strategy is going to apply to everybody. So go ahead, Bren. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a huge part of it that's that's understanding yourself. Um, the only thing I, I would add, though, I think there's, you, you, we can't do it without understanding self, that's for sure. Oh. But I think we also need to understand that which is outside of ourselves. Yeah. So understanding the the world or the landscape in which we're trying to do this. So, and I guess the reason I this is this has been really key in in my life lately. I would say where um, the work I've been trying to do, I've gone okay. So I need to understand what my values are, what I care about, and that's really crucial so that I I exercise my agency and, and choices and do things. But then I also need to go okay, but what, how am I reading my landscape? And again, that's me reading it. So I have to understand my own subjective perspective, but what's going on in the world now, what's going on in my industry, what's going on in, in this group that I'm trying to work with right now, which might draw out a different facet of myself, you know? So I might say, well, actually I'm someone that likes music. I play music. I do philosophy. Like I could do a number of different things Yeah, and understanding myself, Probably actually, as I, I'm thinking out loud here a little bit, but understanding myself probably wasn't what made me pursue a career in philosophy. It was almost understanding what society was kind of needing and recognizing that I had some yeah. of that in me too. So going back to your question before about how I got to doing philosophy work, I think there was a, a, a big moment where you know, I'd done my PhD on the topic of trust and I was actually just working, consulting to businesses, some of which had lost the public's trust, like on on that topic. And then it was through some of the feedback I was getting where leaders were going, you know, actually we we want our people to be sort of thinking for themselves. We want good ideas to come from everywhere. They weren't using this language, but it was almost like they were articulating. They wanted to run their businesses like a good democracy, right? And, And because of things that were going on, in actual democracies yeah. um, at that time, it was clear that you don't get a good democracy just by giving everyone the vote. We also have to have places where we can constructively sharpen each other and disagree in ways that are not just sort of causing huge, huge you know, outbreaks. And so I thought, oh, actually, yeah, if, if businesses would benefit from, from egalitarianism and, and uh, people think for themselves, then what are we doing there? And so I think it was, um, and then, you know, philosophy work sort of was created to to help respond to that challenge and teach thinking skills and things like that. But I think that wouldn't have come about if I was just thinking about myself. I think it was understanding myself in the context of what was going on around me. No, no, I, I completely agree. Um, you, you've obviously got to understand yourself, but clearly you've got to think about the way the world is. I mean, mm-hmm. a very simplistic example is, say with this podcast, it, I can see the analytics. If nobody's listening, then clearly that shows that what I'm doing is not good. So, I mean, that's a very black and white thing. But but also I think about you know, careers. If you're going into, say, an industry which is declining, then uh, you probably, um, it's going to be very difficult to make a successful career in that. Um, so I think, yeah, you obviously have to understand yourself and understand the the way the, we- the world is evolving and, and p- potentially the way industries are evolving to think, okay, it's much better to be in something that's expanding and growing rather than contracting so yeah completely take all the points that you're making there yeah i think that that's right and it, thinking about that i mean what i'm saying is right that expansion and contraction i think that's the really tricky thing it's a really good point that you make that you know things are always changing <laughs> so it's it's that's i guess the hard work of it is to recognize that yes okay i can understand myself i can understand the world both those things are probably changing you know a pretty traditional view of the self was that was, i remember when i was studying philosophy there's this this term the homunculus which translates as little person right so the view of the self is that it's like there's this little person inside of us that is unchanging and is always there and then the more that um you know science and psychology and everything is developed as we've said well actually no you you kind of can evolve and and you know maybe your core values don't flex too much but but actually we're so gosh when you put that into the mix there's a lot of um movement and 
maybe that's challenging, but also I think that's part of what makes it so exciting to be alive and trying to work, <laughs> trying to work things out, you know, um, is going, okay, well, that skill or that way of being got me this far, but gosh, now the world's like this. And now I'm like this. Wh how, what might I need to let go of uh, and grieve that maybe? And what might I want to hold on to or shift into gears? And I think that's exciting. And it's funny, um, when one of my previous guests um, was telling me that, you know, she's a very you know, pleasant person um, and she sort of worked her way up through doing all the sort of technical stuff. And then she was in charge of a department and um, she thought leading was essentially being quite laissez-faire and laid back. And that mm -hmm. led to suboptimal um, uh, performance in the department. But then when she was much firmer about, OK, this is the way it needs to be done. We need to have order. Then clearly, I think everybody knows. Um, you know, it's not about being uh, a, a too harsh a boss, but I think when people realise, look, this is what we need to do in order to get these results, and if we don't have order, then you know, clearly, um, that's not a good thing. So, you know, you can be a good person, but also you can be a, a firm boss. So it's not as if those two things are mutually exclusive. And sometimes, in a way, if you are a nice person, you always have to be a bit harsher because your personality is, um, I suppose, on the uh, more reasonable side. But yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's just very interesting, all these different um, takes on how how we can act. But yeah, no, I, I love the point you're making. But so turning to careers now, so mm. how can philosophy um, help at work? Um, and, I, and we were talking about this off air about stoic principles and how mm. they can be very p powerful. Um, would you like to sort of expand on that, Brennan? Yeah, thank you. So I guess at a high level, the, the headlines kind of reason that philosophy is good for, for career is that, you know, the skills that you get when you do philosophy. And again, here, I, I would distinguish between philosophy, philosophies and philosophers, yeah. you know, where doing philosophy is, is philosophical thinking, pursuing the truth, trying to grapple with tough problems and work stuff out. That I think is different from philosophies, which are packaged up accounts of what it means to live well you know people that have done and, and philosophers are the people that are doing that thinking so if you've got philosophers doing the thinking coming up with these sort of views of how to live well that's all well and good but the, the reason that philosophy that is doing the philosophy you know is, is useful for careers comes out when you think about things like the world economic forum for example has said that in the top top 10 skills actually it features in the top sort of three or four of those complex problem solving critical thinking and creative thinking are things that are needed for the future of work for the fourth industrial revolution all, all this this stuff and that's what you get from those are the muscles that are sort of built up when you do philosophy because you're given a tough cha tough challenge like well, say something about like, work out what the meaning of life is, please. <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be good and be ethical? And what, um, you know, what's really real actually? You know? And all these things where the history of philosophy is sort of paved with um, papers that try to make it look like there's a, a very clear right answer yeah. to those questions. But actually there's there's not necessarily. And that's why we have a really rich discourse around philosophy but but all those questions are so big and so buried that or so complex i should say that when you grapple with them it makes your brain have to practice going okay it could be this or it could be that both seem like good things but there's a lot of uncertainty and yet i have to choose one answer because the next question i'm going to get to is depend is going to depend on that one so uh, so it makes you be very sort of limber mentally and that's good for complex problem solving. It's good for creative thinking. It is all about critical thinking. And so doing philosophy is good for careers because we know that careers these days are um, so dependent on not just what you know, but how you make sense of the data um, and also how you move from one thing you know to the next, right? And, or from one job to the next. And, and so it's good not just for work, but it's particularly good for careers because of um, careers being about how you navigate things right? and how you sort of move from one one point to the next. But I think more more deeply, it gives you examples of people that are courageously uh, embracing not knowing. Um, and I suppose here is an instance where it's beneficial to not just do philosophy yourself, but to but to read about 
the history of philosophy and philosophers. So you come across people like the Stoics that you mentioned, or Simone de Beauvoir, you know, an existentialist, and you go, wow, these people are not just sort of sitting in a plush ivory tower or something, though some were, but for many, many of them, that wasn't the case. And they were doing so about topics that were socially contentious and really difficult. And yet they stuck with them because they cared about trying to do what was right or trying to work out what's true. And so, and I think at this time, when we've got people that are going, you know, as you said before, with uh, post-pandemic going, gosh, do you know what? The, the time I have on earth is, is quite precious to me. I want to do something that matters. And yet I've got to feed my family. So that's a live issue. Well, and there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, when I started doing this, being self-employed and doing philosophy, I thought, gosh, that's pretty risky. Um, it'd be better to be employed. Yeah. But that was at a time when it felt like being self-employed was a risky option. <laughs> now it feels like, well, kind of everything's pretty risky. And so I think that that is sort of leveled out a, li a little bit. So I guess what I'm saying is when you're reading philosophy and when you're trying to do philosophy for yourself, you've got some other flames helping keep you warm. I mean, one thing that was really interesting was in 2020, during COVID, one of the highest selling books was um, uh, The Plague. Uh, which is an yeah, Camus. List. Yeah. yeah, by Camus, yeah. and which is all about. I mean, I I read it then as well, and it's it's a little bit like if Camus was still around, he might be sued um, for <laughs> you know sort of knowing something about what was coming. <laughs> it, it has a lot of correlations, and I think yeah. what people maybe loved and also found terrifying reading it was it felt like there's this little window into what we were going through, and you could sort of read ahead to what might happen if we do this or that, and. And in the same way, I think, and, and so that was comforting, or at least felt like you had a friend. Um, now, it didn't make the, the situation go away. And I think that's a core part of philosophy. No philosopher has ever said, hey, doing this stuff is going to make your life nice. Um, but it, it's a way of thinking through it properly and saying, okay, well, life's difficult, but at least I'm going to understand it, or at least I'm going to try to understand it. And so in a career context where there's so much uncertainty and complexity and all, the, all that stuff. I think philosophy is not only something that gives us the skills that we need to succeed in this time, but it also gives us the encouragement and the courage and, you know, dare I say hope. I mean, philosophy, historical philosophers have not always been the most sort of like cheery bunch, you know, they're not sort of going around talking about hope all the time. Quite often you have you hear philosophers talking more about death and it can seem a bit dark, but actually it's for a really good reason because in talking about death, they're talking about hope because they're going, remember that we're going to die and therefore live really alive now. No, I think I think you made some you know, fantastic points there, Brian. And I think two that struck me is this idea of the jobs of the future. We don't know what those jobs are going to be. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, clearly, you know, medicine, law, um, you know, engineering, sciences, there are certain things which we know, but um, there are many jobs, you know, say 10 years ago, digital marketing or marketing or digital whatever creators that those just didn't exist. So I, I think it shows that um, you have to be agile going forward, um, even if you have a traditional education. But also, I think this idea of um, the environment we're in, and I think talking about Annie Duke, this sort of the chess environment and then the um the poker playing environment and i think there's this like there's this term about like kind environments and wicked environments mm -hmm. where i think kind you know there's rules based so you pretty much know how to navigate it so there are x number of uh moves you can almost train in your mind like a chess grandmaster whereas i think with a wicked environment which i think there's very similar to what we're living in these days there are there, there are much fewer rules and in a way it's up to you to figure out how to navigate that path so i think in a way with philosophy the training it gives you an idea of how can i uh, develop my mind to okay uh see there are these problems which i may not have come across before but i can go down these various paths and it's almost like as you were saying before it's like a decision tree if i go down this route then this is the implication if i go down that path then this is the implication yeah no i think i think that's that's right and it it reminds me of stoic philosophy which yeah. was part of your question before that i didn't respond to so yeah. i might go back to the, <laughs> the, you know, the um the stoics were very big on on saying in order to live well you have two moves the first one is you need to know your landscape sort of map yeah. your landscape right as what you're talking about and then the second one is turn your energy towards the things that you can control 
and don't sweat the rest, right? Now that's easier said than done, but yeah. a lot of the rest of Stoic literature is basically just giving loads of examples about ways that we might try to do that. And so they would say things like, you know, it's a good idea every once in a while to, to just sleep on the floor, you yeah. know, without a blanket. I suppose to remind yourself about the fragility of your life, but also to go, when you wake up the morning after that, you might go, you know, that wasn't my best night of sleep, but I didn't die. You know, I'm kind of okay. <laughs> and and it, it, again, brings back some of that perspective, which is needed if we're saying, okay, don't sweat the stuff you can't control. For them, what they thought you could control, the only thing, they were quite pure about this. They were like, yeah. the only thing you can really control is your mindset. So you can't control nature. You can't control other people. Um, and, and also this was, it was born out of a, a massive career pivot. So, you know, Zeno, um, the founder of, of Stoicism, uh, what, you know, I mean, there's lots of, of Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Aurelius yeah. Seneca, that, that are, are known for Stoic philosophy, but, but it was kicked off by someone named Zeno, who wasn't a philosopher to begin with, um, but was a merchant, and then was in a storm, lost their ship, and all, therefore all their merchandise and everything uh, at sea. And sort of the, the character goes that they were sort of washed up on the beach. And as you do, when you sort of go on, okay, well, I guess I can't do that anymore. Um, what do you do? You go browsing in a bookshop and um, came across, he apparently came across the writings of Plato and the dialogues with Socrates and, you know, found solace in it. And, and kind of like we were talking about before, had just gone through this big change and then found people talking about, well, what does really matter? What's really real? Um, there's a great deal of humility from Socrates and that was maybe comforting. So then decided to start his own school of philosophy, met under these this colonnade that the word for was Stoa. So they were just nicknamed the Stoic philosophers. And, and out of that, you can sort of see how the thinking was very context sensitive. It's not just this sort of like abstract academic thing. They were going, it was very real to him that not, you know, life is not a closed system. It's not all nice and cheery and you might lose your belongings at sea. So what should we do then? And what he came up with was, well, you can't control nature. And so what can you control? Well, what's going on inside? And, and so I guess, yeah, I think things like that can be very helpful because they they echo in our minds. And so then when our train is late for an important meeting or we don't get the job that we really wanted, it's not just like, oh, I read a bit of Seneca, so I guess I'm okay. It's going, well, hang on, let me actually think about that. Can I control things? No, this is frustrating. What can I do about this? Okay, I'm actually going to, what I can do is think about how I frame this and um, there's a lot of psychological research since the days of Seneca um, and Zeno that have said that positive reframing actually really helps. And, you know, by, by saying, OK, I, I, I'm seeing it now as a missed train or lost job, but let me reframe it as an opportunity to do something else. So, you know, something like that. And it's not just semantics. It's not just thinking nice, positive thoughts. It's it's actually changing the lenses that we're filtering life through. And I think that's that is really useful because it's. It's, it's saying, no, actually, I'm not living in a world where I've just lost something. I'm living in a world where that happened, but there might be other things I can do. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's very much about the execution that you can think about these things, but actually you've got to put it into practice and say, look, okay, what's happened has happened, but I've got to you know try and move on somehow. And I suppose sort of moving on from that, you know, say um, you come across people who are, say, stuck in their job search or, or stuck in their career, and they're looking back at the, the job that they didn't get offered or the promotion that they've missed out on. Now, it's very easy to start ruminating on that and think about, oh, woe is me and getting filled with regret. Um, uh, do you have any thoughts about how philosophy can help us um, deal with that? Um, you know, obviously, there's a reframing aspect. Yeah, I think it's a, re a really good point. So, I mean, one thing that I think analytical philosophy can suggest. So, you know, the sort of schools of philosophy are generally divided into, uh, well, lots of different camps. Um, but within, uh, within this scope of say western philosophy there tends to be analytical philosophy and continental philosophy and analytical philosophy is like philosophy by numbers you know it's it's trying to just do clear logic and how do you define your terms and that's that's a lot of the philosophy that i was taught just 
I think based on primarily sort of the part of the world that I was studying in. Yeah. Um, but, and it's certainly not all of philosophy and it's not all of wisdom. And it's not even the part that like warms my heart. But one thing that it taught me was to define my terms. And I think um, if we think about regret, an analytical philosopher would say, well, let's stop for a second and say, well, what is regret? How, let's define that. What, what does it mean? And I think without getting into the, um, I've not actually read all the philosophical literature yeah. around regret, but I would, I would bet that it would be understood as a reactive attitude, which a reactive attitude is one, an affective sort of emotional um, emotional um, reaction that bubbles up in response to not just something that has happened, but something that we infer uh, someone has intended to do against us, right? So now that's one form of regret. So yeah, I don't know, someone um, breaks up with me. I regret that and I hold it against them to some extent, right? That's a reactive attitude. But there's another form of regret, which I think almost makes more sense. And it's a regret that is only ever, it only ever makes sense to talk about when it's down to things that we've done. So if I miss a job opportunity, I might be disappointed, but in a sense, I think it's a bit strange to say that I regret that because I maybe I had nothing to do with it. Now, maybe I did because I did the application and I went along to the interview and maybe I said the wrong thing. But Again, the Stoics, I think, would want to say, well, but it's it's not a closed system. It wasn't just up to you. If if I say, okay, I could have bought these shoes or I could have bought those shoes, yeah. I could have moved to this city or that city, there's still luck involved in everything yeah. and everything, but it's my choice. And then I move to one city or buy one pair of shoes and I'm unhappy and I go, oh, I regret buying buying that one, not the other one. That's fair. But I think a lot of things in our careers that are that happen, now I might regret, you know, saying the wrong thing. Yeah or doing something that gets me fired, of course. But but when it comes to missing out on an opportunity, which I think is probably more what's going on in, in so much of us yes. when we think about regret in our career, uh, maybe it's it's comforting to go on the sort of analytical, philosophical journey and go, well, what is regret? Where does it make sense to talk about it? To go, it, I think it only is really right for us to talk about regretting things that are within our control. And then we have to say, okay, well, was that career missed opportunity within my control no it wasn't okay well then therefore it might not be very comforting to say oh a philosopher on a podcast told me i shouldn't i can't it doesn't make sense for me to regret it then you know that's not the point but but by thinking through it, you might go oh do you know what actually that was out of my control it doesn't say anything about me i'm disappointed that i don't have that job but it doesn't mean i'm any less valuable and i think when we regret things the stab of regret is some sort of shame it's it's something uh, where we're saying, oh, I am bad. And so if I can reframe the situation and say, you know what, it was out, outside of my control. I didn't miss out because of me. Um, it was, you know, maybe they just, they they said there was a, lots of other candidates and um, I always feel like they're just saying that, but maybe they, well, maybe they really meant it. Um, okay, I'm therefore not really going to regret it. Um, the Another thing that comes to mind with regret that might be helpful here is I... Um, sometimes, you know, you come across people that say like, do you have any regrets? And they say, no, I, I don't regret anything. And, and, and like in our culture, sometimes that's thought to be a really positive thing. Live as if, you know, live so that you have no regrets. In contrast to that, I feel like if I have no regrets about things that are in my control and that I do, then I haven't been probably growing or improving. Yeah, exactly. Like when I look back on my life, I've got some, some big regrets, some things that I go, oh, I can't believe I said that. Mm. Like, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, how embarrassing. I would never do that now. And that is like, make you know, oh, I, I hate having those memories because it just feels so embarrassing. But there's solace in going, okay, the reason I regret that is because I can now see that that was so wrong. And I can only see that that's not so wrong because I've been growing, you know? So so I don't know. I guess that's where my mind goes when I think about regret and career is like, if we regret things that we've done, then maybe that's uh, a sign that we're growing and and wouldn't do them now um and if we regret things that were out of our control then it's i don't know if it makes sense for us to be regretful because um i think regret's something that we apply when when we had something to, more to do with it if that makes sense no i i no, i think i think that's a really interesting way of almost trying to uh split uh the type the feeling into these two um areas there's one um say i went to an interview and i said something stupid or i wasn't appropriately uh, attired or you know whatever there, there are things that i can or i wasn't appropriately prepared clearly that is something within my control 
I need to learn from that. I need to improve. But then on the other hand, if you go in and you are fully prepared, you have all the qualifications, uh, you've done everything possibly that you could do, then on that side, it, it, it it's worthwhile reframing and saying, well, it could be that there were better candidates or the manager just preferred somebody else, which, which can happen. Um, and I think in life sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes maybe with the personal development work and um, self-help, people say that, you know, you have control, you're the master of your own destiny. But clearly that isn't the case. And, yeah. and I don't think that's a message either of us are telling our listeners now. You know, clearly there are huge numbers of uncertainties and uncertain things out there, but you just have to learn to deal with it uh, and make the best of it and not get stuck in regret, regretting or whatever term we use about things that we have absolutely no control over. Is that sort of broadly correct, Brent? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly how I think about it. Yeah, I'm in two minds about how much control we have in life. You know, so yeah. I think you're right. Neither of us is saying, oh, just, you know, think it and it'll happen. But but at the same time, I think, well, we we, we certainly can exercise our agency and we can we can yeah. we can influence things. So it's I, I don't think I'm I'm not exactly a stoic because they, you know, so they're again, their context, they're writing in a time where they're dealing with firm beliefs around like ancient gods. Yes, yes. And so for them it was sort of the natural world is at the the sort of control of the gods and, and everything. Yes. Yeah. And so I, you know, I don't think that, but I also, I think we can do things. So I don't, I, I'm not a pure stoic because I'm not just saying, well, I just can't control anything. I can't influence anything as well. Um, instead, no, I think we, we can influence, but the way that I think about it, something my dad used to say, which was, it was sort of a, a, a word picture metaphor of some sort where he was like, you know, you got to put your, if you, if you want to go sailing, you've got to, you can't control the wind, but you've got to put your sail up. I'm not here saying, why isn't this boat moving? I've still got it. I've got the anchor down and I haven't put the sail up, but you know, I guess I can't control anything. Yeah. Um, I just have to accept it. No, I'm going to raise the anchor. And I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put the, the sail up and uh, maybe I'm going to like blow into the sail myself, you know, but I, but that's not the whole thing. So yeah. I, you know, I think that's the point. We can't control it all, but we can, we can have coffees with people. We can, work hard we can do that but also remember that you know what it's not it's not we're not entitled we're not sort of um just because we work hard doesn't mean it's going to work um it does mean that we're probably going to learn you know if we if we try it so i'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of um growth mindset in general you know i know that there's been lots of critics of say carol dweck's research around growth mindset for example and things like that but i think the general thrust of saying focus on the effort you put in and, and what you can be learning rather than just the results. I think that's that's a good move here as well. Completely agree, Brandon. I think I think from our discussions, it just shows that there are no easy answers. <laughs> and, and I think it really is incumbent on each, each individual person to say, look, there are a number of these ideas out there. Some may apply, some may not, but you have to uh, be smart and think, okay, what does, which one of these applies to myself and almost try and individualize that and make um, almost a path for yourself using various different philosophies. And I think being wedded to one, you can be a bit too dogmatic sometimes and say, look, every, every, you know, one philosophy is not going to cover everything. So you might have to sort of pick and choose things that work for yourself. And I think that's a, a, a more sensible way to be rather than saying, okay, there's one right path to success and being dogmatic and sticking to it and you know it, it may work it may not but um you know the modern world is a it's a messy world yeah i couldn't I couldn't agree more and and that's you know that's why sometimes people ask me like oh what philosophy does philosophy ever teach <laughs> and I'm like well we don't really teach philosophies yeah. um we're much more interested in in helping people think well themselves and it kind of um it kind of scares me to think of someone just adopting a singular philosophy and go, this is going to be my lens for everything because I just think life is more complicated than that. That's why I think, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a fan of rather going, okay, let, let's try to live well. And some days we're going to feel like we got it. Some days, I do, you know, it's not going to make any sense, but we're going to be in pursuit of living fully and 
openly, honestly trying to understand what's really going on. And, you know, gosh, if there's a, if there's a philosophy or a way of living that, that gets it all, then that sounds great. Um, I'm, I just think it's life's bigger and sort of more beautiful than that, than rather than sort of the dogmatic way of going, it's just going to fit into this. So, yeah, I think, and actually when it comes to careers, I don't think there is sort of one philosophy or one approach that just fits everything, but the, uh, the, the skills of thinking through all those things are again, the skills that we need to, to work really well. So, um, so yeah, I think you're, I think you're exactly right about that. And, and Brendan, one sort of final question is how, how can we actually create the space and time to think so many of us are so busy. Um, we really have no time. So how can, how can we create that? Yeah. So uh, here again, I think uh, I have to go back to Iris Murdoch and that sort of self and <laughs> love Iris. <laughs> yeah, I love, love it. Um, and the reason I say that is there's things that help me make time to think that might not work for you, might not work for someone else. And so I have to understand, uh, you know, to your point before, I have to understand myself and the context and situation that helps me think well and and do that. And so, I mean, some examples um, and also there's probably more than one, right? So like, for example, right now I've got my, I'm, we're, we're talking, you know, sort of sat at my desk and I've got my desk sort of on an angle. Um, and for some reason, I couldn't quite articulate this. There's probably some neuroscientist somewhere that, that would explain this to us, but I have my office, a really open plan kind of space because I'll come in and depending on what I need to sort of process or think through, sometimes I'll feel like, yeah, this is, this is, this is the angle I want yes. to sit at. Or maybe I'm going to, I need to stand for this next hour and do this bit. Yeah. Or maybe I need to go and walk to do it. And, you know, so sometimes, um, you know, there are studies that will say you have your best thinking when you're in the bathtub. Scott Barry Coffin, um, the, the New York academic, um, you know, pulled out a stat about this one time. It was like 75% of us have our best ideas in the bathtub. I don't know. Yeah. Other people will say, no, it's when I'm cycling or running or playing piano or these flow state kind of activities. I think as we practice them, we notice different types of thinking. So I know that when I start the day with a run, I can't really hold a thought fully when I'm in a flow state, but it creates space in my yeah. thinking so that later when I sit down, I have good, good ideas or I can think through things properly. Um, but that's not, if I need to actually make a decision, I don't go for a run because I need to be more concrete than that. So yeah. instead, what I know works for me and some things I su could suggest are like, you know, make yourself a hot drink that you like. So for me, that's coffee. It might be tea or just like water. I don't know, whatever. And then put on something that's going to help you feel like in the headspace, you know, so yes. <laughs> or an iron shirt, whatever it's going to be. Mm. Just get a sharp pencil and, and, think through it uh, you know one of the things that we do in some some of our workshops just because if we say okay now think through a decision people are like how do i do that um is we get people to write a word at the heart of the thing they want to think through down in the middle of the page um so this is what we call our neural mapping activity so yes. you've got to work on budgets but you're having a hard time getting started you know how do i get moving on this so you write the word budget in the middle of the page circle it see what comes to mind and maybe the next word is like fear so you write mm. fear next to it and draw a line from budget to fear and then you think when i think about fear what comes to mind and you know so on and so forth and you yes. map you map the connotations the sort of neural network around these concepts in your in your brain now that doesn't get you doing the budget it doesn't tell you what figures you should put in the budget but it gets you thinking about what's going on for you and you might go oh do you know what i realize actually i don't have enough information to do the budget yet or I have a, an anxiety about this. You can go away and deal with that and then come back and actually get started with the budget. So there are thinking tools that we can do. The neuromap is one, um, just sit, you know, carving up some space, thinking about your physical space or movement, like the running one. Um, another one just really quickly that that I, I practice and sometimes we talk about in, um, in our self-awareness workshop, we actually start with this. Pressing pause, reflective check-in. So you just sort of sit or stand comfortably, maybe shut your eyes and you start by scanning through your body sort of just thinking through the top of your head down to your toes just noticing what's going on at the physical level oh there's a pain in my knee or whatever and then you scan through at an emotional level and you go okay now what am i where am i at emotionally um and then the last thing is sort of scan through your thinking are there any sort of um, ideas that are hanging around is someone that something from my last meeting is it still lingering and you just sort of note some of this stuff down and it only takes you know a minute or two do it in the lift, whatever. But by doing that day in and day out, it is a way of creating a habit that creates space where we can even have ideas. If we're, if we're not even doing things like that, then we're going to just be going, bouncing from thing to thing to thing, from meeting to meeting, or like from email to you know social media, whatever. And there's not a lot of space 
yes, we might have responsive ideas, but we're not going to have our own ideas. We're not going to be thinking, making sense of what we've already uh, consumed, right? And so I would say move, hydrate, do a neural map, cultivate a habit like taking five uh, minutes or three minutes even, and just scanning through, train yourself to, to check in with what's going on in your body, your emotions, your ideas. And that makes uh, a big help. No, I, I just love that. And I think just the whole idea of trying to create a habit where you can build in these small times for space and reflection, it's, it's great. Now, I know that we're coming up to the end of our time, Brennan, and I don't want to keep you too long, but just a couple of final things. How can people uh, get in touch with you? Because I know you've obviously got your website, uh, you're on LinkedIn, uh, anything else? And all this will be in the show notes. Yeah, certainly. So uh, Philosophy at Work, uh, so www.philosophyatwork.co.uk um, is a website. You can learn more about the work we do in businesses and the thinking skills workshops. Um, also, I'm on LinkedIn at Dr. underscore Brennan underscore Jacoby. Um, we also have Philosophy at Works, which is just at philosophy underscore at underscore work on Instagram as well at philosophy at work. And uh, yeah, and then there's there's all sorts of ways to reach out through those platforms as well. Um, if anyone wants to pick up any of the themes that we've discussed here. Fantastic. And, and Brennan, one final thing. Um, is there anybody, one or two people who you'd like to thank who's helped you on your journey or your personal life? Not an Oscar speech, but just one or two. <laughs> yeah, great question. Um so, I mean, you know, the, the first philosophy professor that I mentioned earlier, who was telling the story of Plato's Cave, was yes, Dr. Yeah. Charles Campbell. He's hugely, hugely beneficial to me. He's really generous. And one of these philosophers who didn't make out like, if you studied philosophy, you would discover all the answers. You know, he would, in his lectures, he would tell you all this really sort of complex stuff and we'd be gripped with it in the lecture but then he'd always end with something like oh but you know who knows and I think it was a, a nice sort of injection of humility um that really gave me a hunger for the spirit of philosophy rather than just sort of learning how to think so that I could um sort of expand my ego you know so yeah Dr. Charles Campbell and also uh Mifa Salter is a, a coach and trainer. Um, she's been a mentor of mine for years and uh, we've worked together. Um, and uh, and also uh, just a, a really wise, wise person um, that has not only played things back to me about my career and everything that a good coach does, but, um, but has sort of mixed that coachy playback with also some suggestions and has been, a, a, again, really generous and supportive in um, uh, helping me understand my strengths. Because I think particularly, maybe it's something about studying philosophy that teaches you to sort of doubt everything and critique everything. And you can, you, it's good, but you can become very sort of critical sometimes if you're not careful. So I think she really helped me see why what I was doing would be helpful to people. And, and that was a, a good connection. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you once again, Brennan, for your time. And um, yeah, look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the future. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Hasha. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.